Okay, here we go. There we go. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I know it has been a few weeks, but we will get ourselves caught up. Mark chapter 2. As we look at this section... First of all, we remind ourselves why we're looking at this section. We're looking at this section because verse 26 is the famous verse that really led to Bart Ehrman renouncing Christianity, basically becoming the Bible skeptic that he is, all because of the problem found in it. We've spent nine plus hours working on the problem. Um, we've, we've suggested all kinds of solutions. I, I hope someone has a list of all of the ones we've come up with so far. We'll go back over them in a minute, but we're going to start this morning. Uh, we're going to try to pivot a little bit here because remember we have, well, let's read the text and I'll see if you can remember the two major issues that we have here. All right. Maybe three major issues, but here, Mark chapter two, starting in verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. The he there is referring to Jesus, his disciples. They're going through the fields. It's the Sabbath day and they begin to pluck ears of corn. All right. Verse 24. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Verse 25. And Jesus is speaking here. And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was unhungered? He and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. All right? What are the two, I think there are two major issues, we, we'll, we'll group them as three, three major issues with this passage of scripture that any good Bible student would make it a focal point of trying to resolve in preaching or in any other uh, realms of dealing with this text. What are the three major issues? Number one, everybody go, what's the first one? All right, the first major question is, okay, Jesus seems to be using this story as some kind of justification for what he did. So is he pointing to something that David did that wasn't unlawful, almost in arguing, well, if what David did wasn't unlawful, then there's no way that what we have done is unlawful. Or is he saying, if David could break the law, I can break the law. So did David actually break the law in eating to showbread? That, that's the first one, all right? What's the second major issue? Okay, Mark 2, 26 says that, it's, uh, that this occurred during the days of Abiathar, the high priest. When we go back to 1 Samuel, is it 21? I'm trying to remember the cross-reference now. I believe it's because it's a number. I always get numbers wrong. 1 Samuel 21, and we find out it wasn't during Abiathar being the high priest. It was... Ahimelech. So that's the thing that Bart Ehrman could not resolve. And that's what led him to go, well, the New Testament's not trustworthy. Right? Those are two. And then what's the third major issue? We've kind of already hinted at it. The third one is, what is what's the point Jesus is trying to make? What exactly is Jesus trying to say here? Because it's a weird, he uses a story that is somewhat troubling. Can we all agree that the story he uses is troubling? Because by, David goes in, asks for the showbread, eats the showbread, and what ultimately happens after all of this? People die. And it appears, at least from, I know not everyone agrees with this, but I think most people read it to say that David lied. Others say, no, David wasn't lying, and we'll have to deal with that controversy later. It's just amazing. that It shouldn't shock me that when it comes to Christianity, we can't even agree on that. But there's disagreement even on that. The problem is, we got to figure it out. So these are three major issues. 
Right? Sounds good. Three major issues. Okay, now, so far, we've only been working on which issue? The Abithar issue. And what have we come up with so far? I'm counting on you, Sarah, because I think you have them all written down, okay? Here we go. The first solution we came up with was, number one. Did y'all both say the same thing? Oh, you got to scroll there. Okay, all right. Stacy may have them as well. All right, Jesus made a mistake. Now, we know that one doesn't really work well, right? If Jesus made a mistake, then we're just like, there, there's no point in answering the rest of the questions, right? There's, there's no point in doing anything else. In fact, let's just all go home, okay? So, we don't believe that that one, it works, all right? Number two, Mark made a mistake. What's the problem with Mark making the mistake? Destroys the doctrine of inspiration because Mark is the one who would be, we believe, if we say Mark is the author, right, that Mark is the one writing under inspiration and therefore the inspiration didn't occur, therefore we've got a problem, all right? Number three. Okay, we, we, there's, our third approach was more like, okay, okay. Instead of trying to blame someone, let's try to take a step back and let's ask ourselves, what do we know? What can be clearly proven by all the information? And here's what we can prove. That um, Abiathar was a priest, and Abiathar obviously became high priest. And he was alive at that time. Right? Now, it doesn't fix everything, but it just kind of... What, is that, what, what was kind of the point of the third one? What, what do you think my, the, what I was trying to accomplish with the third one? I was trying to kind of like, look, uh, you've got Bart Ehrman over here going, this destroys the entire Bible. And I'm saying, well, slow down, slow down. I'm not saying there's not a problem, but let's look at exactly what we have here. Abiathar was a real person, so Jesus is not making up a person. He's mentioning someone who was actually a, a priest who was alive at that time and who actually becomes high priest. So it's not like it's saying anything completely factually wrong. It's just maybe an issue of time. And so I I wanted to at least kind of alleviate that, hey, uh, this may be an issue, but it may not. I mean, of all the issues in the Bible, when you look at it from that perspective, this is kind of way down at the bottom of my list. All right. Next. What was the next solution? Though what Jesus simply is referring to Abiathar, the high, you know, in the times of, of Abiathar, the high priest, because that was the highest title he ever received. Now, what happens to Abiathar may call this one into question because he's the only high priest to be removed, basically, from his office. So, so that, that, that one we may have a problem with, but we haven't got to that yet. We haven't got to that yet. All right, we're, gonna get, we're getting ready to get to that. Okay, next. All right, this one... I like this one a little bit because it makes a little bit more sense. I know this one makes people nervous, but what we claim on this one is that basically this becomes an error, not an in inspiration, but an error in what? Translation or transmission, right? In other words, in the copying. And, that we, and why do we think that an, uh, an error may have been introduced in copies? Yeah, Matthew and Luke, who seems to be ref- who we think Mark is the source, almost everyone agrees with that. Abiathar is not even mentioned. They tell the exact same story and they leave Abiathar completely out. They just don't even mention it. So that seems to imply that they would have been using the earliest copy of Mark, correct? And that we believe that some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this in it. Even though they're lower in number, they seem to be that many people are, would argue they were more widespread and that this uh, problem shows up later. So this is just a, what we will refer to as a textual variant where a phrase is added that doesn't possibly support the original. Not everyone likes that idea because it bothers them. But the prob- problem is, just remember, inspiration only applies to what? The original copies. I know that makes people nervous, but there's just fact to that, Okay. All right, next. In the days of, do we restrict that like, hey, when it was in the days of Abiathar, in other words, he had to be the high priest at that very moment, 
Or can the phrase be so broad that, you know, during that general time, including when Abiathar became high priest, that one is somewhat, I like that one a little bit, right? That, that doesn't seem to be too far of a reach, all right? Next. Okay, we don't understand why this one is even said. Hey, it wasn't in the Aramaic original. Okay. <laughs> right? I, that just seems to add more like, why, why don't we just say it wasn't in the Greek original? You know what I'm saying? So I, yeah, I don't, I don't. But then they try to argue the, well, that, that gets into a whole different thing. We weren't a big fan of that one. Next. Okay, who is the son of whom? Okay, meaning, well, how did we? Right, that there seems to be in at least two places in the Old Testament, right? Where, wait, one is the son of this one and the other one is the father, and then it kind of reverses it, right? And so, does that mean that there's just issues with when they're referring to these names, the names get mixed up, the names get confused. Like when they want to say Ahimelech, they, they end up making a mistake and saying Abiathar, and when they want to say Abiathar, sometimes they say Ahimelech. Is that kind of a simple way of putting it? Is that, is that, I know it's not sophisticated, but that's kind of a roundabout way that there was some confusion in these names. Is that halfway okay? All right, is everybody, is everybody okay with that? All right, uh, was there one more? The, Okay, three more. Okay, the next one. Okay, Jesus is just kind of offering a commentary here, and he's not trying to be precise, so we can't hold him to precise details. I'm not a big fan of that, because I, then every, every time Jesus says something, we're like, well, is that really accurate? I, I'm not a big fan of that. Next. Okay, that uh, this one tries to argue Ahimelech was just a normal priest, Abiathar was the high priest, but we kind of looked and tried to work that one out, and that didn't really work out very well, did it? Don't we all agree that didn't seem to work out? Okay, next. Yeah, this one, this one confused, well, at first it confused me because of the way the article described it and because I was confusing this article with some, something, some email that I got because some people try to claim that basically that, that there was only one person who had two different names, right? Which is very confusing. Does that make sense? Because obviously the narrative in the Old Testament makes them very clear that they're two different people. Agreed? So then what we realized the article was attempting to argue is that these are, that each, two, that two individuals, make sure I state this right, you have two individuals who could be called by either name. Is that a better way of saying it? Yes? Right? And wh- why does that get confusing? So if they can be called either name, when I'm back there reading something about Ahimelech, is it Ahimelech or is it Abiathar? And when it's Abiathar, is that not Ahimelech? Because if they can be called either name, how do I know which name is being utilized at which given time? Well, when it says Ahimelech, it means about Like, I don't know. Like, that just seems like I would ha- not be able to read anything in the Old Testament and know who they're talking about. Does that, does that make sense when I started trying to express that frustration with that argument? Yes? Okay. So, uh, I'm not a big fan of that one. And we could explore that one a little further. Because what they do is they give a list of other passages where clearly this, but on all of them, it seems to me that they, the examples they gave was one person being called two different names. Which I don't understand why they would go to that example if what they're claiming is that these are two people with being called both names. Right? Am, I, am I understanding it correctly? That doesn't, like those other examples wouldn't help. You'd have to have two people who are, the names are used interchangeably for both. If that is the case, how do I read, anytime they show up in a narrative, how do I know which individual is which if they can both be called the other name? I, that, I, I can't even wrap my mind around how that would work hermeneutically or even just basic reading comprehension. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to transition out of all of this. And now what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to now figure out what in the world Jesus was doing in this story. We're going to try to figure out 
uh, did David sin or not sin? And we're going to try to figure out if there is a possible solution still to the Abiathar Ahimelech issue. I think we've already come up with possible solutions that have to be better than some of these others because that last one just confuses me all day long. Like, wait a minute, I'm reading here. So who died? Was it, a, was it Ahimelech or was it Abiathar? Because if the names can be used interchangeably, then how do I know which one died, right? So, like, that makes no sense to me. So, all right, but we're going to try to figure this one out. This one's going to be confusing. Is everybody ready for that? This is going to, oh, I don't want to do this one. But the only reason I'm going to do this one is I want you to see how this one attempts in a roundabout way to resolve exactly what Jesus is doing in the text or what Mark is doing in the text, I should say, and why maybe it uses Abiathar instead of Ahimelech, all right? Is everybody ready for this one? Here we go. Oh, man. Mm, I, I've, 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 I've chopped this up so many different ways because if I go through it the way it's presented, I, about halfway through, y'all would just be like, what? And I would be like, I don't know what I just read, and it would be all confusing. So I'm going to try my best. So thinking caps on. Here we go. Mark's characterization of Jesus unfolds throughout the narrative as a communicative design. So they are, right, right here, they believe Mark 2, 23 through 28, is a narrative of a communicative design, that it's, it's, a, it's designed in a way to communicate something. Now, on one hand, that seems redundant because you would think every narrative is trying to communicate something. But in other words, it's specifically put together in a way by design to communicate something. So in other words, Abiathar is put there on purpose to communicate something. There's something, there's, there's something below the surface. Does that make sense? Right? Yeah, someone said nope. Okay, well, okay, all right, all right, good. All right, let me state it this way. Mark is careful to situate the revelation of certain aspects of Jesus' identity as significant plot points. So in other words, the information provided in Mark 2, 23 to 26 has something to do in identifying Jesus. In other words, it's a, think of it this way, it's a Christological narrative. A narrative that's supposed to teach us something about Christ and his identity. All right? Does, does that sound impressive? Okay, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I use communicative and Christological in one paragraph, then I, I, obviously it has to be it has to be the right one, correct? Okay. They say in the context of Mark two twenty. Oh, let me read this again. In the context of Mark two twenty six, we can see two, and I say two, Christological emphasis at play, which develops sequentially. And contribute to the market, mar, to Mark's Christological port, portrait. In other words, th- there, there's two major issues here that's going to be used for by Mark to get to this real. Ah, oh, we learned this about Jesus. Okay, yeah, and aha, like oh, this this is it. Now here here's kind of the what the 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 painting that Mark is trying to to put together that. Jesus, as the messianic son of David, and Jesus as a priest. Those are the two things they want us to see. Mark wants us to see in Mark 2, 23 to 26. Jesus as the messianic son of David, and Jesus as the high priest. Does that that sound good? Good. In understanding the importance of these narrative characterizations and in observing how they unfold, we will be, under, we will be able to understand why Mark intentionally 
highlights that, that the, the reference Jesus makes to Abiathar. In other words, this was done on purpose. This was no mistake. This was no mix-up. This wasn't just, well, how do we understand in the days of? That this is intentional. That it's done on purpose to paint the picture about Jesus being the son of David and the high priest. Does that sound good? All right, maybe. I don't know. All right. we'll, we'll work through this. And I can't read everything here, but okay. The first thing they attempt to do, and it's long, like it's probably three pages long. All right? And I, and I was going to just have us work through it, but it's like I, you just get lost because it's so confusing. They make an argument that in the Gospel of Mark, the title or figure of the son of David as applied to Jesus is present in Mark. Now, the only problem is, and many of the references to Jesus being basically referred to as the son of David in Mark, because I went through all of them and I kept getting confused. Some of them, David, or Jesus seems to almost want to, he's almost reluctant to have that title applied to him. He almost seems to push back. And they're like, well, in reality, he's not, he's not pushing back. In reality, so all their, their whole premise is the son of David, that title is significant to Jesus in the gospel of Mark, even if it appears that it's not. Okay, we'll go along with it, right? We'll just play along and say, man, that's a significant title. All right, does, 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 can we do that? At least for, for pretend? They may be right. It's just when I kept reading the references, I'm like, Jesus sure seems to be pushing back on that. But okay. All right. I I was going to go through all of the references, but we don't have time. Now, so I love the way they say this. Now that we've established the importance of the son of David. So because they kind of go through all these passages that seem to say Jesus is pushing back. And then they're like, hey, but he's really not pushing back. So now that we've established that this is significant. Now they're going to move on. How does it relate to the grain picking episode of Mark 2, 23 through 28? Of the few explicit mentions of David in Mark's gospel, this passage is the first. And as the first, I contend that paves the way for the other references to David that follow in the narrative sequence. So they're saying this is the first reference to David. Therefore, it's the most significant And this is going to establish how this concept, son of David or David, as reference to Jesus, how it is to be understood in the rest. Okay? Wait, was there there confusion? No, I I just, you got to look like you didn't, like there was something. Okay, I want to make sure I didn't say something incorrectly. All right. All right, so are we good here so far? All right. He goes, I contend... All right, all right. It is hardly questionable. Now, this is what they're, they're making an argument. Now, please, note, we do have to note something here. If you watch the logical progression of thought, it is kind of confusing, right? Because they go to the other references of David and say, okay, this phrase is important. But then they go back to Mark 2, saying this is the first time. And Mark 2 determines how the other ones are to be understood. But they started with the other ones to come back to Mark 2. So it's kind of like, well, wait, why did you start with the ones that come after to tell me how important the phrase is when this one is the one that supposedly establishes the importance of the phrase? It's just, I, I don't know. The whole trying to follow the logic here is a little confusing, but I'm playing, I'm going to play along. I'm going to play along because you know what I tend to do? Take the view and then do what? Agree with it and see where we end up. Now, if we end up in confused land, well, I blame all of you because you're supposed to fix it for me. All right, here we go. Um, okay, this, here, here's, what they're, here's their claim. I, I, I try to summarize this. The author of this paper for a seminary says, I contend that Mark 2.23 paves the way for the other references to David that follow in the narrative sequence. It is hardly questionable That in the dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus is making a comparison between David and himself. Everyone look at Mark 2, 23 through 28 and tell me if you agree with that. 
Mark 2, 23, 28. We've already read it once. Y'all can just look. Yes. They say that it's not even questionable. Okay. Well, all we need right now just to establish, is he making a comparison? Is Jesus making a comparison between David and himself? All right, Stephen says yes. Stacy says not so much. She says he's comparing David to the disciples. All right. Now, one of the reasons I'm doing this is I just love how here, here's someone. This is a seminary theological journal, right? And they're like, this is not even a question. Jesus is comparing himself to David. And immediately we have people going, I'm not so sure. I just love that because it just demonstrates that when it comes to hermeneutics and Bible interpretation, it's just insanity how, how little we can agree on. I, but are you willing to do this for now? Are you willing to play along? And let's say that he is comparing the two. Is, are you willing to at least humor this idea for a minute? Okay, can we at least humor it? All right. Now, by all means, write to the side that you doubt it. Because, no, if we start taking this apart later, you can go back, well, it fell apart right at the beginning, okay? I, I'm all willing to hear your disagreements. I just, I just, it's always insane how many different perspectives can arise over just one little thing. It's just amazing. All right, so here we go. I need everyone pay attention. Here we go. It is hardly questionable that in the dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus is, ma- uh, Jesus is making a comparison between David and himself. But the real question regards the nature of the comparison. So they're like, there's no question about the comparison. The issue is the nature of the comparison. Why? What is Jesus trying to accomplish in making this comparison? I understand you may doubt the comparison. They're like, the only issue is the nature of the comparison. So far, so good? All right. At one level, it is David's authority to override a cultic and legal barrier which Jesus uses as the basis for his approval of the unorthodox actions of his disciples. So they're saying at one level, this is what's happening. You ready? David's authority to override a cultic and legal barrier, Jesus uses that basis for his approval of the unorthodox actions of his disciples. Right? No, cultic in the idea. Okay, uh, if you in, like within, yeah, yeah, C U L. But in, if you refer, like in some religion, a cultic pra- or cult like practice can be something that a group of people say, "This is what you have to do. You can't only do this. You can't do that." Okay. Right. Yeah, not a cult. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. No. Okay, all right, here we go. But from a narrative perspective, the mention of David is not simply a, um, a, a reference as a way to establish a precedent for violating Torah, but is intentionally mentioned in, an, in another to establish a connection between the person of David, his authority, and his context in 1 Samuel 21, and the person of Jesus, his authority and his context as the point in Mark's narrative. So they're saying on one level, this is not there just to say, hey, this is a reference as a way to establish a precedent for violating the law. That's, that's not really what it's there. It's there to do this. It's to establish a connection. Everybody ready for this? The person of David, his authority, 
and his context in 1 Samuel 21. And then the person of Jesus, his authority, and his context in that point in Mark's narrative. To see this in in a clearer way, we need to recall the broader narrative details of both Jesus' early ministry and David's early ascendancy to the throne. In both cases of David in 1 Samuel 21 and Jesus in Mark 2, we have a ruler and his band of men who represent a new unrecognized kingdom. So you have David with his men, right? The kingdom is not yet recognized because David's not yet king, right? He's He's not ascended to the throne. Agreed? Can we agree there? Okay. Jesus is with his men, and you could say he's not yet, I guess, quote-unquote, sitting on the throne, if you want to try to draw this correlation together. All right, okay, maybe, I don't know. The, the real issue is where is it going? I'm not so much worried about how they get there right now, I'm worried about where they're going, okay? <laughs> but we're going to try to figure this out. Um, okay, i got to find this here. Um, Okay, so uh, we have Jesus basically with, uh, with a group of men who represent a new unrecognized kingdom with this ruler and the followers wandering through the countryside currently embroiled in conflict with the regent religious and political authorities. And in both cases, the leadership is considered illegitimate and unfavored by God. So David, he is, he is viewed as illegitimate and not doing the right thing and not right with God. Jesus with his men wandering around Jesus is not seen by the authority as right with God and doing the right thing. So he's trying to show the similarity between David's situation and Jesus' situation to demonstrate that this is a comparison between the two. Now, I know some have already rejected that, but they're trying to say, look, if you look at the Mark situation and you look at the 1 Samuel situation, it's identical. I'm not hearing any affirmation. Are y'all not in agreement here? All right, I just hear, I just hear, keep going. Okay. All right. Steve, Stephen's trying to at least say maybe. Okay. All right. Here we go. Um, in David's case, as the true anointed king, he comes to the priest at Nob to and violates otherwise a sacral or a sacral prohibition. But the narrative in 1 Samuel indicates the divine appointment of David, the divine appointment of David justified his action, leading Jesus uh, and Mark's audience to the question, uh, what identified Jesus that could justify his similar actions? So they're saying, okay, the way 1 Samuel, and I'm not so sure I agree with this, do, do we view David's actions as being justified? And is that the reason Jesus is telling the story? Because somehow his actions can be justified. This still goes back to how do we understand what David did, right? There, there, there you're kind of going more with the idea that... Right. See, they're kind of going... They're kind of going it was a divine appointment that this is, was supposed to happen... Therefore, what David did was justified. Therefore, can Jesus use it? And some like, there's a divine appointment that this was supposed to have. And it's justified. I, I know we still, I, I still believe David lied. Others say he didn't lie. And I, I, I man, this, it's, it's just amazing that we can't even agree. You can't even have agreement on what David did. So I, if we can't even agree on what David did, I don't know how we're supposed to interpret Mark chapter two. I, I don't know what we're supposed to do here, but okay. Let's see if we can figure this out. Jesus' specific choice of wording in Mark 2.26 is also important as he adds the seemingly unnecessarily detail that David gave the showbread to those who were with him. And later in Mark 3.14, the narrator adds that Jesus gave authority to the twelve that they might be with him. They say that there's something significant. You look at Mark 2.26, does he not specifically say and gave the bread with those who were with him? And then if you look at Mark 
He gave authority to those who were with him. Do you see similar language? All right. They think there's significance here. All right. All right. Maybe. Maybe. The narrator adds that Jesus gave authority to the twelve that they may be with him. While on the surface this seems innocuous, it is possible that Mark intends this connection to be clear to his readers in order to establish yet another comparison between David and his men, Jesus and his disciples. As one puts it, Mark thus prepares us to surmise that Jesus' gathering of the twelve is modeled on David's gathering of his movement. They're saying there's a bigger narrative happening here. And the narrative is establishing a correlation, a connection between what happens to David and what happens to Jesus. And that this this narrative may begin in Mark 2, but it carries on through Mark. All right. So far, so good. No, not really. All right. If indeed, now they say if, Mark's phraseology was so careful and his narrative connections so intentional regarding these Davidic connections, I suggest that his inclusion of Jesus' mention of Abiathar over Ahimelech was also careful and intentional. In David's context, Ahimelech would be killed by King Saul. Right? Everyone find where Ahimelech is killed. If that's where it occurs, I mean, obviously that's a good starting point. See if you can find where Ahimelech is killed. So we can just establish the factual claims being made here. It's shortly after the showbread incident. It's very, very close after. I think we've already looked at this once, maybe twice. Okay, you're saying First Samuel twenty-two six. Okay. And, and chapter and verse thirteen and verse thirteen, Ahimelech. It become, this is where in he accused of conspiracy, starting in thirteen. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against thou and the son of uh, Jesse, uh, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son in law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then be, uh, begin to inquire God for him? But as far as for me, let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father, for thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. Then the king said, Thou shalt surely... Die, Ahimelech, and all thy father's house. And what happens in verses 17 to 19? Everyone dies. That would seem to include Ahimelech. And then what happens starting in verse 20? Abiathar escapes. All right, so Ahimelech is killed. So we, can, can we agree that's a, a factual concept? Yes? Yeah, so far so good? All right. So, in David's context, Ahimelech would be killed by King Saul or in or orders, King Saul's order shortly after the episode at Nob. And Abiathar would serve in a more significant capacity as priest under David's kingship. However, Abiathar is not only mentioned because he is more memorable, but rather because of what he represents. All right, stay with me. So look at what they're building. David and Jesus are being compared to one another in Mark 2. Everybody got that? Abiathar is mentioned because he represents something. 
In other words, he, he, Jesus, he's not being mentioned there because of trying to be historically accurate. He's being put there as a literary device. He represents something. What does he supposedly represent? What do you think he represents? What do you think? Okay. So some think Abiathar represents something positive. Let's see what they say. So far, everybody with me? All right, here we go. Um, but, re- okay, he's mentioned rather because, uh, Abiathar is not only mentioned because he is more memorable, but rather because of what he represents. In David's context, Abiathar started well. Sounds good so far, right? And served for a long period, but it ended badly. Stop right here. So everyone knows what happens to Abiathar. It's First Kings. First Kings. First Kings, chapter one. Well, yeah, something pretty significant happens. First Kings, chapter one. Let's go here really quick. First Kings, chapter one. Now. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, which was my original plan, right? Okay, we don't have time. So, here's, we're going to, we're going to, if you'll notice at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1, what, what is, what, what's the condition of David starting in verse 1? He's old, right? Having some issues, is he not? Okay. And uh, they, he's, he's about, he, basically he's getting old and he's about to die. Okay, what starts happening in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5? Adonijah says, okay, look, 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 look. David is weak. David is dying. And if the king dies, what has to happen? Okay, so uh, don't you agree when a king dies, someone has to replace the king? And so Adonijah says what? Or once he starts working? He's going to be the one. He's going to exalt himself, Right? Okay, now this could create a problem, right? Because sometimes who would replace the king? The king's son. And in this case, who's the king's son? Solomon. So Adonijah is going to try to take over. Now, what does this have to do with Abiathar? Does anybody know what happens? Verse 7. He takes the side of Adonijah against basically David. What ultimately happens? Okay, yeah, there's a split. There's a disagreement. There's a split. Who ultimately is made king? Solomon. Solomon, yeah, Solomon is made king. Okay, I was, yeah, I was like, Samuel, Samson? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. He, so he was going to go through all the S's. Okay. All right. all right. Solomon. And then what happens to Abiathar? Chapter 2. 26, 27. This is pretty significant. This is what, if we don't read anything else, we got to read this. 1 Kings 2, 26. And unto Abiathar the priest said the king, and which king is that now? Solomon, get thee to Anathoth unto thine own fields, for thou art worthy of death, but I will not at this time put thee to death, because thou bearest the ark of the Lord God before David, my father, and because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest. He's deposed. He's kicked out. He's excommunicated. He's removed from office. He's impeached. Whatever words you want to use, he's removed. Now that's, now, now go, now no one mentioned this when we were going through all of the possible solutions. Remember one of our solutions? Well, he's just calling you, he's just saying Abiathar as high priest because that's his highest title. I don't think a man who loses that title would still be referenced by Jesus as high priest. No, Solomon removed him because of his treason, treason against David. 
So Jesus wouldn't still be using the highest title. That completely eliminates that one as a possible option, okay? Isn't it funny how something can sound like a possible option until you go, we finish our entire study and you realize that's not even a, that's not even a, why would anyone even suggest that? Abiathar becomes basically a traitor and gets kicked out of office. Jesus wouldn't be like, I'm just going to use an honorable name. No, give me a... He's not showing respect to the guy, right? That's, that doesn't make any sense. All right, so, now, this is important. Abiathar started well, served for a long period, but ended badly due to his participation in a revolt of Adonijah against Solomon, David's anointed son. As a result of this participation in an association with a plot against the son of David, Abiathar was the only high priest to ever be deposed in the Old Testament. So if you were going to refer to Abiathar by his highest title of honor, it would be the guy who got kicked out of being high priest, right? Because that's kind of, that would be his greatest honor. And Mark's context Jesus is highlighting Abiathar to insinuate. Are you ready for this? That the Pharisees represent Abiathar, who was present during David's taking of the showbread and participated in his transgression and would eventually be shown to be illegitimate because of the Pharisees' participation and rebelling against Jesus as the true son of David, who is greater than David and established a greater kingdom. Additionally, just as Abiathar was deposed for his participation in his rebellion, Caiaphas would later be deposed as high priest. That everything here is symbolic. Jesus is, is in comparison. There's a, there's a comparison between Jesus and uh, David, and then Abiathar is mentioned because that represents the Pharisees, who in a sense are participating in a rebellion against whom? Jesus. And that entire system is going to ultimately be destroyed, deposed, finished. No more. All right? That sounds good, doesn't it? Yes, no? No, Stacy doesn't, doesn't like it. What is anybody, is anybody else? Okay, now, no, no, this, this is, okay, this is good, this is good, all right. Here's why I find interesting when it comes to hermeneutics and it comes to Bible interpretation. I want, and now, and you got to hear what I'm about to say here. There is a Bible interpretation, a hermeneutic, and I'm not going to place these in hermeneutical systems like historical, grammatical. I'm not going to do that. Just listen to me. There is the hermeneutic of, can we say the hermeneutic of the average church member? And there's the hermeneutic of the seminary. So when you read theological journals, right? If you read any of them, you'll notice that they'll have some like, like it'll be like 10 pages long dealing with some text and they'll be like this and this and this and they'll have all of these issues. And guess what? 99% of the time, guess what those never show up at? In the hermeneutic of the, of, the, of the average person. Guess what hermeneutic is typically preached? Does anybody here listen to sermons? The, the hermeneutic that's preached is the hermeneutic of the average person. Okay, right? I mean, come on. I mean, that's the, nobody is listening to seminary lectures. Yeah, yeah I mean, nobody's, no, nobody's preaching that way. Nobody's going through all of these going, well, it could be this and it could be this. And nobody's like, nobody cares. The average person in the pew wouldn't even want to hear all of this. Okay? So I think we have to at least understand there's a discrepancy here. And we have to ask ourselves, why is there a discrepancy? 
right? They, they're basing it off the concept of, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't look at Mark 2, 23 through 26 as some isolated narrative. Understand that Mark 2, 23, 26 is a part of a broader narrative. And this broader narrative is a contrast between Jesus and David as somehow being, there's a contrast between the two. And you look at all the similarities of David and you look at all the similarities of Jesus and you can see the, you can see the similarities, so you have to understand Mark 2, 23 through 26, not in light of those verses, but in a broader narrative. Well, guess what? If I walked around the church today, okay, and I have a piece of paper, I'm like, okay, give me. What's the narrative of Matthew? Yeah, what, what, what's the narrative? Like, like, they're trying to argue there's a narrative that goes throughout Mark that deals with Jesus as the son of David, and that there's this contrast. Does everybody see that? That's, there's a narrative there. The average person would not be able to tell me the narrative of probably any book of the Bible. You'll give me some basic facts, right? Like, oh, this book is kind of about this, or, or here. You'll give me some of those basic background information, but most people have never dealt with it in, from a narrative. Like, here's the establishment of a narrative. Like, you know, if you're reading literature or you're or watching a movie, where's the narrative, right? Doesn't the narrative be- have a beginning and then it develops, right? And there's major sections to a narrative, right? And then you come with the dramatic conclusion and that narrative tries to weave in and tell something right there's in other words it's all think of it this way when we think of a, a, a narrative in a movie or in a novel it's all inclusive right would we agree it's not broken into individual chapters the chapters are irrelevant because it all fits together in one narrative what do we tend to do with the bible Oh, come, come on, you all know, nobody reads it that way. Individual chapters, individual verses. Even in exe- exegetical preaching, what do we do? We go verse by verse, right? And we almost separate what we cover in chapter 2 from chapter 1. Sometimes we try to brought, build some kind of connection, but it almost like his individual sermons, not a flowing narrative. Now, some people don't like the narrative emphasis. Some people do. This is trying to establish there's a narrative here, and we're going to have to stop right there. Okay, because we're at the top of the hour. All right? Well, oh, well clearly, there is a, if there's a night and day difference in hermeneutics between the average person sitting in the pew and the person over here looking at it more from, a, I'm going to say, at a seminary level. They're, like, they're, you're in two different worlds. What's frustrating is the people in the pew will immediately reject the seminary one. Almost immediately say, that's wrong. There's just no way. That's wrong. And the ones in the, in the seminary will almost immediately reject what? The layman's. Well, how, how is that supposed to work if there's just mass difference? Now, you can, can you understand the frustration of those in the seminary level? They're spending basically eight hours a day doing what? Studying this, the people in the pew barely will spend 15 minutes with a Bible in six months, but yet they'll tell the people in the seminary that they're wrong. That, that, always, that blows my mind. There's a little bit of like, I do, will never understand that. Like, how did that ever, how did that mindset ever enter into the church? I think everybody wants to be Luther. Right? Everybody wants to be like, you're wrong! And it's like, wow, I... Can you just grab a hammer and start nailing things on a door, telling everyone they're wrong? I mean, can you? But I'm not saying that I agree with this one. What I want you to see is how wildly different this is from if we took a hundred people sitting in the pew, they would not even come close to what we just read. Now, does that make that, that other one right? Not saying that. But does that make it wrong? I'm not saying that. What I want to draw the attention is the difference. So according to them, 
Jesus and around. Now, this one can start falling apart. I I think there's some possible problems here. Can start falling apart. But if we compare Jesus and David here, then is the comparison simply that Jesus was wandering around with his men, yet to be sitting on the throne? And they engage in this because they seem to imply that what David did was wrong. Right? So clearly the, 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 they won't draw the contrast that far or the comparison that far, agreed? So if, if, if Jesus didn't do anything wrong and David did do something wrong, I, I don't, I, just saying that the Abiathar represents the Pharisees and because he was deposed... So it's almost like it's it's almost like they're blame who who's getting the blame here like trying to figure out how this helps us understand the story because it's almost like saying well David messed up because the high priest is it a way of blaming the high priest and so what what's really going on with in, in Jesus situation the problem really is the Pharisees it's not what them eating the grain it's the Pharisees that are wrong well then what does that say about David was David wrong or was it the priest who were wrong? In other words, once you start drawing some of these connections that sound good, the logical outworking of the connections, to me, leads to some major possible contradictions. Does that make sense? Like, if this represents this, well, that doesn't make sense. Does, I'm getting some looks like maybe that doesn't make sense. Does that make sense, Sarah, or... Yeah, if I put the picture together, it, there's parts of it that sounds really cool, right? Well, Bithar got deposed, and guess what? The Pharisees and the high priest, Caiaphas, he's going to be deposed. Oh, wow. Okay, oh, look at that connection. Now, that's interesting, yes? But how does it paint the picture is where I'm a little lost. Because in a roundabout way, who was wrong in the David story? Unless you say that he wasn't wrong. Unless you say that he was divinely, that was divinely appointed for him to do that and he wasn't in the wrong. Well, then why would Abiathar be the bad guy in the story? Right? Because David didn't do anything wrong. So then how does Abiathar represent the Pharisees? You see where, you see, it sounds good, but it starts to fall apart. Now, we'll, we'll let them finish it. I, I want to finish it right now. I want them to finish it, but you see, I'm a little, I'm a little perplexed where the story is going. Like, they make it sound so good, and you're kind of like, in some ways, you're kind of impressed. Like, wow, I don't know if I would have saw this narr- narrative. This is interesting. But then there's a part of me that stops and goes, but wait a minute. How does this story work? How does this story work? It kind of falls apart. Any thoughts? Right. Right, but they're saying that Jesus is using Abiathar as a picture of the bad Pharisees. But, but... Oh, no. They're saying that, that Jesus is not even trying to follow the first Samuel, that all of this is being included for symbolism. To paint some picture that supposedly Mark's readers will pick up. Okay? Well... That, that's, yeah, see, that, that's a whole different issue. Now, but I say, I'm arguing, even if that is the picture, does it work? See, I'm saying that even if I agree with the picture, remember what I always try to do is agree and then take it to its logical conclusion. The picture seemed, at this point in our looking at this, would we agree at this point the picture doesn't fit? It doesn't quite make sense? Because, okay, so you mentioned Abiathar. Okay, the high priests are bad. Okay, so... Are you just ignoring everything that happened in 1 Samuel 21 and who cares what David actually did? Well, then even that, you're, 
Like, hey, he mentioned Abithar, that no good low down trader. Why would he mention him? Well, because I'm David and I'm dealing with the low down despicable Abithar, which is you guys. In other words, what Jesus is saying, I'm not really worried about what actually happened. I'm, the, I'm David and I'm dealing with you low down traders. Thank you. Okay, very good. That's, that's one of the things we're going to have to test. Because remember, I kept saying, well, wait a minute. The Pharisees' reaction. Exactly. That's important. If it's supposedly so clear, they'd be like, how dare you call us a biathar? We're not traitors. They don't seem to pick up that that's somehow being implied here. Agreed? All right, we have to stop. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning. Very difficult, difficult passage in trying to understand. It is amazing how many different ideas have been put forth in the history of Christianity to figure this out. So many of them either fall apart after further investigating, but I thank you that we are hopefully demonstrating a commitment to look at each one so that when we're done, we have an idea of what does work and what doesn't work and that we can hopefully figure out exactly what was trying to be said to us in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...